0: Welcome to The wall. My name is Ryan Gear, I'm the pastor here. If you're new with us, you're our guest, and we're glad you're here. And if you'd like to let us know, just text the word WELCOME to 480-530-7234. It'll text you back with the digital connect card. Just fill that out and tell us about yourself, and you'll get more information about The Well. Thanks for being with us today. Today is already the third week of our new series, Not That Kind of Christian. Now, we want to be known by what we're for. We want to take the positive approach. And at the same time, when we say that kind of Christian, we all know who we're talking about, don't we? There are people who are self-professing Christians who look down their noses at other people. They're judgmental. They, they may see themselves as the moral police of society. And they just look at, at other people with disapproval. There are some who, who oppose diversity. And they're trying to protect their own culture that is connected with, with whiteness and white supremacy. And they, they are threatened by the demographic changes in the United States. And as we said here in the past couple of weeks, there are some who are even uh, turning to political authoritarianism to try to force the rest of the country to live according to their religion or according to their culture. And and so what we're saying in this series is we believe there's a different way to follow Jesus Christ than what we're seeing from that kind of Christian in the United States right now. When we read about Jesus in the Gospels and then we see the way some Christians are acting, we think, wait, there's a disconnect here. We're not seeing the Jesus of the Gospels lived out in America by so many people who are claiming His name. And and so in this series, we're proclaiming here's what we think it looks like to follow the real Jesus that we read about in the Gospels. Last week, we talked about understanding the Bible because so many of the the issues that we're talking about in this series start with a person's interpretation of the Bible. On week one, we talked about freeing Christianity from political authoritarianism. Today, we're talking about the question is god violent because we see an increasing amount of violence in america from some of these folks who claim to be christians next week we're talking about christianity and other religions or no religion what is the relationship between christianity and people of other faiths or no faith then on february 6th the relationship between faith and science february 13th the history of american christianity and race February 20th, Christianity and Abortion. And then February 27th, we'll talk about the Bible and sexuality. So we hope you'll join us every week in the series as we talk about what we believe it means to follow the real Jesus. And today we're talking about this question, is God violent? And more specifically, even in what Jesus was doing on the cross when Jesus was crucified, was God somehow being violent towards Jesus? So that's the specific topic we'll talk about today. But generally, is God violent? And that's important because we live in a time of increasing violence in the United States. There's a group of people who feel like they're losing power. They feel threatened by increasing diversity in the United States. And there are violent white uh, supremacist groups in America. And then there are people who sympathize with them. Folks who could be called white Christian nationalists. In cor- according to a study published in the past couple of years of that, of that same title, White Christian Nationalism, they found about a third of Americans have this idea that somehow God gave America to white Christians. <laughs> no matter how wild that sounds, there is a, a percentage of Americans who seem to believe that. And, of course, we saw the, the violent expression of that at the Capitol and in other outbreaks of violence around the country, and we hope that there will not be more of that in the election later this year, in the presidential election in 2024. But in January, um, or earlier this month actually, a CBS YouGov poll found that 54% of Americans now think the biggest threat to their way of life comes from domestic enemies. People within the country, they, they write, there's a bipartisan agreement that the nation's way of life is most threatened by individuals who are already in America. With 53% of Democrats, 56% of Republicans, and 57% of Independents, each choosing that as the most significant risk. They view other, other Americans as the enemy. They believe that the number one threat to the United States is from people who are already here, other Americans. Now, there are also groups of people in America who seem to idolize weapons. Just before Christmas, a congressman from Ohio posted a photo of himself and his family on Twitter posing in front of a Christmas tree and they were all brandishing military style guns. And his tweet said, Santa, please bring ammo. Now, if you know anything about responsible gun ownership, what's the number one rule of gun safety? Always treat it like it's loaded. There are people in that photo pointing guns at family members. I think the mother is pointing the gun at her son-in-law. Maybe she meant to, I don't know. But that—that that is certainly not responsible gun ownership. That's a politician pandering To a, a specific group of people who celebrate Christmas, who probably call themselves Christians, and they also idolize guns to the extent that they fuse Christianity and guns, Christmas and guns. My wife was driving in our area here this week and she saw a bumper sticker that said, God, guns, and then the name of the former president that show in a bumper sticker it shows this fusion of people who call themselves Christians and yet they seem to idolize guns and what are guns used for there is a concerning uh, amount of sentiment in this country from people who claim they follow Jesus Christ but then they seem to be open to violence we have a church facebook page that you are probably watching the service on right now if you're watching it live and And like any Facebook page, our church page gets fed content from Facebook. Facebook shares content with our page that you can't see, but I and the other people who who manage our social media can see that news feed. And for some reason, I guess because we're a church, Facebook has an algorithm that feeds us content, some of which is from right-wing groups. It's misinformation. It's it's this mocking... um, mean-spirited rhetoric that we get fed apparently because we're a church on our facebook page i wouldn't even know that content was on facebook if i didn't help to manage a church facebook page it reminds me of a scene in the office if you were a fan of the office there was an episode where creed wanted to start a blog if you remember this and and ryan in the office said he wanted to spare the world from creed's brain and so (laughs) ryan opened a word document and at the top of the word document he, he typed something like www.creedthoughts.com backslash www.creedthoughts or something to that effect, and so Creed would write on the Word Doc, thinking he was blogging, and and Ryan read some of it, and he said it was crazy, even for the internet. Sometimes maybe you feel that way, and what you see in social media, there's this this violent rhetoric, even violent words. And this mocking tone that views other, other Americans as enemies, and we see that on our social media. So there is this God and guns crowd, and then there is this group of Americans who believe that God gave America to white Christians. And perhaps some of them might feel justified in committing violence towards other Americans if they believe God is violent. And that's why what we're talking about today is important. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, maybe it's scary and flat out embarrassing to you that there are other people who call themselves Christians who act in this way. And then maybe it's also troubling to you that there are passages in the Bible that portray God as violent. Like we talked about last week in understanding the Bible, there is a progression even within the biblical books themselves on how God is viewed. Earlier, there, there are passages that portray God as a, a tribal warrior deity who commands the extermination of the Canaanites. It's, it's incredibly troubling. And then yet, even within the Old Testament, it, it's, some people have the idea that God is mean in the Old Testament and then God went to therapy, and then we have the New Testament. That's not true. Even within the Old Testament, there is this progression, the Hebrew Bible. There is this progression of seeing God as violent, towards seeing God concerned with the rights of everybody, justice and righteousness and peace and joy and kindness and loving your neighbor. There is a progression even within the Old Testament of seeing God in that way. And then we have Jesus, of course, teaching to turn the other cheek and to pray for your enemies and, and pray for people who hurt you. But there is this progression even within the Bible itself. And there are Christians that look at what jesus did on the cross and who god the father is in relation to jesus and they see god as violent even in the crucifixion those are called theories of the atonement we'll talk about what that means here in a second but there is this view that's popular in american christianity that when jesus was on the cross that god was this angry um, wrathful deity who who wanted to exact you know vengeance from the human race and so god punished jesus on the cross for the sins of individual people that god was so angry at humanity it was though god was ready to lash out at human beings and jesus just stepped in and took the beating instead of us now at best that theory sees jesus as god in the flesh and and and, and so God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit were together taking on the sins of, of humanity on behalf of humanity at best. At worst, there are folks who hear that theory of the atonement and they see that as God being like this cosmic child abuser and lashing out at His Son, punishing His Son for things His Son didn't do. And if there are folks who have a violent view of God even in the crucifixion, they could see God as this angry, violent violent deity who gives them permission to be angry and violent towards other people. So today we're talking about who God is, particularly when Jesus was on the cross. What does that tell us about who God is? Is God this angry, violent deity who punished His Son Or is God someone else? Now I realize that some of you are really into theology and you like deep theological discussions. Others, you hear that and you're like snooze fest. I hope that you would be willing for a few minutes to love God with your mind and to think deeply about what Jesus was doing for us on the cross and what that says about God. And it will help you to understand your faith better. And it will help you as, as somebody who wants to follow Jesus to understand why, no, we, we don't have to go along with what we're seeing in American society. From angry, violent people who call themselves Christians, there is something better than that. So, first, a good place to start is understanding the real world events that led to Jesus' crucifixion. During the Passover in Jerusalem, there were thousands of religious pilgrims who filled the city to celebrate the Passover. Passover. This is in what is now Israel. It was called Palestine at that point. It was under occupation of the Roman Empire. So there was a Roman governor over that area where Jerusalem was, his name was Pontius Pilate. And any time that there were religious events in Jerusalem and thousands of people poured in from the rest of the country to to observe that that, uh, religious event at at the temple in Jerusalem, Pilate and, and the Roman government would become nervous and they were quick to crush uprisings. Of course, the people of Palestine did not want to be occupied by the Romans, and there were uprising, rebellions, revolts against the Roman Empire. And what would happen is when, when somebody would revolt, the Roman governor, essentially Pontius Pilate, would have them crucified. Crucifixion was a way of, of, of mocking the victim, executing them, of course, but doing so in a way that erased them, that shamed them, that canceled them, that wiped their memory off of the earth, and, and said to, to everybody else, if you, if you act like this, if you, if you dare to rise up against us, the same thing will happen to you. And the Gospels tell us, uh, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke specifically, that during the Passover, Jesus went into the temple courts and He turned over the tables. He said, you've taken my, my Father's house and you've turned it into a den of robbers. Because there, there were merchants selling things, and you it's like you had to buy something in order to be able to worship God and they were charging exorbitant prices to sell these objects that you had to take to the temple and so they were manipulating uh, religion for profit. And Jesus turned over the, the, the tables and, 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 and drove out the money changers, the gospels tell us. It wasn't long after that Jesus was arrested. That was the final event that caught the attention of the Romans and Jesus was quickly crucified. Now, for followers of Jesus who heard Him teach and saw Him heal and, and, and followed Him and, and were devoted to Him with their whole being, to see Him executed in this way, in a way that shamed Him and was an attempt at erasing Him, it was so degrading to Him, you can imagine the trauma that caused them to see Jesus killed in this way. And so they sought to understand what His death on the cross meant. Why would God allow this to happen? How, or did God cause this? In their theology, they weren't sure if maybe God causes everything or maybe God allows everything. Why did this happen to Jesus? And so they began to make sense of the death of Jesus the best way they knew how using their own scriptures, the, the Hebrew Bible, what Christians call the Old Testament. And they came to see the death of Jesus within the 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 system of sacrifices that that their religion taught them within the symbolism of sacrificing things to God and offering things to God. They saw the death of Jesus within the Passover story, the the, the Last Supper. When we celebrate Communion, we're reenacting the Last Supper, and that was a Passover meal that Jesus shared with his disciple In the Book of Exodus, uh, disciples, the Book of Exodus tells us that when God brought the israelites out of the land of egypt that they slaughtered a lamb and they put the blood of that lamb on their doorposts and then an angel passed by that house and spared the firstborn son in their home and if you if you're not a religious person a lot of these stories sound disturbing but these are these are stories that we have and they sought to to understand jesus as, as the passover lamb that in his bloody death on the cross it was like his his blood somehow spares us and was shed for our benefit. And they saw Him as a sacrifice for sin. Uh, The ancient Israelites would sacrifice animals or they would bring a grain offering as an offering to God to atone for their sins, uh, to to be cleansed, purified from their sins. And they saw the death of Jesus as like the ultimate sacrifice for sins. Two famous Scriptures come from the Apostle Paul in the letter to the Romans that, that show this view. Paul writes, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood, to be, received by, uh, to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Sacrifice of atonement refers to the, to the cover on top of the Ark of the Covenant in the Hebrew Bible in the, in Leviticus chapter 16 and and the priest would slaughter a, a bull and a goat and would 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 put the blood of that animal on top of the ark of the covenant and that was meant to atone for the sins of the people on the day of atonement and and Paul saw Jesus's gruesome death as a form of sacrifice and then in Colossians 1 Paul writes the son Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He's talking about Jesus here. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together, and He's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. So that in everything He might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him. Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So Paul Paul sees Jesus as God in the flesh, that all the fullness of God dwells in Jesus, that Jesus is the creator. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. When you look at God, when you look at Jesus, you see God in, in he, he gave of Himself on the cross to reconcile all things, to make peace through His blood shed on the cross like a sacrifice. So in their most positive light, these scriptures are understood as Jesus being God in the flesh and voluntary giving His life on the cross in a way that benefits humanity. H- however, there are Christians who seem to have this view of the atonement that sounds like God the Father is punishing Jesus Unjustly for the sins of other people, God is angry and violent and punishing Jesus. Is that what God is like? Because if so, they may feel permission to be angry and violent. So, atonement is an English word that literally means at one You can break the word apart and understand what it means. It means to reconcile, to restore a relationship, to, to take two parties and unify them, to make them one. And, Just so you can see that there are more views of the atonement than what so many Christians in America have been given that that do show this, this angry, violent God punishing Jesus on the cross, I want to share some of the major theories of the atonement with you throughout Christian history. And the point is not to turn this into a seminary class, especially for folks who are not really into deep theology, but the point is to show you that there are several different ways of viewing what Jesus was doing for us that don't paint God as this violent, angry deity who was getting ready to smite the human race and Jesus stepped in and took the beating instead of us. There are other views. And so I'm going to quickly share some of those views as we consider this question. Is God violent? So first, the, the first view that became popular in the early church was called the ransom theory and it's a theory of the atonement that originated in the early church particularly with the theologian Origen, who lived from 184 to 253 and the theory teaches that the death of jesus was was a ransom sacrifice and it was like jesus paid a ransom to satan that that the devil owned the human race and by dying on the cross for our sins Jesus was paying a ransom to Satan to free us this was in a time when slavery was assumed in the Roman Empire and you could redeem a slave by buying the slave from the slave owner and you could set that slave free and so it was like Jesus by giving of himself on the cross he paid this ransom to Satan and freed us from the slavery of sin and Mark chapter 10 verse 45 Jesus says actually when he's teaching his disciples, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And so there are folks who say, well, there it is right there. Jesus calls himself a, a ransom. And, in, and Paul writes in 1 Timothy that Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all people. And this was the popular view of the atonement for a thousand years. Think about that, a thousand years. This was the way that Christians around the world viewed the death of, of Jesus, that Jesus gave of himself as a ransom. There wasn't anything about God punishing Jesus or that God punishing Jesus for the sins of individual people, but Jesus gave himself as a ransom. That was a popular theory for a thousand years. And then uh, there was a leader named Anselm of Canterbury who was a Benedictine monk, and he lived from 1033 to 1109. So a thousand years later, and he saw problems with this idea of Jesus giving himself as a ransom to the devil because it was, it's strange that the devil could own the human race. Like, why would God allow that to happen? Why would, why would God allow the devil to own us? So instead, Anselm said, perhaps because of sins we've committed and original sin, there was the idea that, that humans were born in sin from Adam and Eve, and perhaps we owe a debt to God because of our sin. And Jesus' death on the cross satisfies that debt. So this is called the satisfaction theory. Because Jesus was sinless and he, He was obedient to God the Father, Jesus gives Himself to satisfy this debt, to pay our debt that we owed to God. It was like the scales of justice had been tipped because of our sin, and Jesus balances out God's scales of justice. That our sin brought God dishonor and Jesus' death brought God honor. And Once again, there, there was not this idea that God was punishing Jesus for the sins of individual people, but that Jesus was giving of Himself to, to pay our debt because God, God's, dishonor, God's honor was offended by sin. God is a good God and, and, and Jesus was restoring God's honor and then a little bit later the incredibly influential theologian Thomas Aquinas who lived from 1225 to 1274 said that Jesus voluntarily stepped in and bore our punishment for original sin that Jesus did take some kind of punishment but it wasn't like God was punishing him on the cross for individual people's sin but that Jesus took punishment for original sin that began in the garden with Adam and Eve. So Jesus' death was substitutionary in the fact that Jesus was a substitute being punished for original sin instead of the human race. And that's what Jesus was doing on the cross. That's the satisfaction theory. And then around that same time, there were other Christians who saw problems with that. They saw an issue with the idea that that God was so offended that Jesus had to be punished. And so there was a leader named Peter Abelard who was a philosopher and theologian and he lived from 1079 to 1142 and, and he proposed an alternative to the satisfaction theory called the moral influence theory of the atonement. He saw problems with the satisfaction theory's view of God as this offended and harsh judge And according to abelard jesus died as the demonstration of god's love for humanity and it's god's love that changes people's hearts it's god's love that calls people to turn from sin and invites them to turn back to god it's not that god was harsh and and jesus took punishment but the cross demonstrates god's love towards the human race and it's god's love that draws us to god so you can see immediately, at the same time a theory was proposed that God was, that Jesus was taking the punishment for original sin, that there were other Christians who said, wait, that that doesn't really present a full and accurate picture of God who is love. That was a thousand years ago. Now, remember, none of these views took place in a vacuum they were all influenced by the culture of their time. Like everything that happens to us, we're influenced by the culture of our time. Uh, The satisfaction view was influenced by laws at the time, perhaps even Germanic laws about offending the honor of the king. And you can see how that could have made its way into the satisfaction theory. Now, a few hundred years later, the Protestant Reformation took place where there are folks who were protested the Roman Catholic Church, and they became known as Protestants, and they led the Protestant Reformation. You think of of leaders like Martin Luther and John Calvin and John Knox and uh, Ulrich Zwingli and other other leaders who who led the Protestant Reformation. And one of those leaders was John Calvin, who lived from 1509 to 1564. Calvin was an incredibly influential theologian and uh, ingenious a clear thinker and a clear writer who uh, was uh, was was rational and logical in his theological arguments. Uh, he was an attorney who later became a theologian and a reformer and and as Calvin protested the Catholic Church, he developed a theory of the atonement called the penal substitution theory of the atonement, a phrase that probably tests the maturity of everyone. Who hears it? But but you hear penal as in penalty. That that somehow there, and then substitution that that Jesus was a substitute who paid the penalty for our sins. So you think in terms of a law code. Again, Paul, uh, Calvin was a lawyer, so you think of of paying the penalty in, in within the framework of the law and and being punished for breaking the law and, and paying a, a penalty under the penal code, the law code. And so Jesus paid the penalty as a substitute for other people. Now, if you know anything about the Catholic Church, some of you are raised as Catholics. Catholics have priests who hear your confession. And then the priests will, will impart absolution for your sin, uh, the, the cleansing from your sin. And then and the priests can prescribe penance. To a person who confesses penance is kind of like you, see, you hear their penance penalty like you're paying the penalty somehow by performing penance acts of penance you are you are taking on a penalty for your sins that you've confessed to the priest and then you're you're absolved you're, you're, your sins are wiped away well Calvin as a, as a Protestant reformer rejected the priesthood and confession and penance and so how it worked for him was that instead of confession and absolution and penance, Jesus paid the penalty for individual people's sins as a one-for-one substitute for them on the cross. So Jesus stood in as a vicarious substitute and died instead of individual sinners, and Jesus made vicarious atonement for them by taking the penalty for their sin in their place. And God punished Jesus on the cross for the sins of individual people. Now that was new. That was a new view in the history of Christianity about 1500 years after Jesus. Nobody before that had said that God was punishing Jesus for the sins of individual people as a one for one substitute in their place instead of them, vicariously paying the penalty for individual people's sins. Now, that made sense for John Calvin because John Calvin created a, a system of theology called Calvinism. And there are five points to Calvinism. It's, in, it's known in the, the acrostic tulip, T U L I P. The T in TULIP stands for total depravity, that human beings are unable to choose God or participate in our salvation. The U stands for unconditional election. That means that God chooses individuals who will be saved and they are the elect. And if God elects them for salvation, it's unconditional. They can't do anything to influence God's view. So God predestined individual people to be saved. It's called predestination. You've probably heard of that term. And so that's controversial in and of itself that God would predestine individual people for salvation. And if God predestined them, then their salvation is unconditional. They will be saved because God has chosen that. L means limited atonement. That means that Jesus did not die for the sins of everybody in the world, but only for the individual people who are the elect. So it's a limited atonement. And it made sense for Calvin because if Jesus died for everybody, but God only chooses some people to be saved, it's like the atonement was wasted. But Jesus was a one-for-one substitute for these individuals who God predestined before the foundation of the world to be saved and died in their place. So limited atonement. And then I is irresistible grace. If God has chosen you, you can't resist God's grace. So the elect cannot resist God's grace. It's irresistible. And then finally, P stands for perseverance of the saints. If God has chosen them as the elect, they will be saved. They will persevere and be saved. And and so in Calvinism, Jesus did not die for the sins of the world. He died as a one-for-one substitute for the individual people who God has elected for salvation. Now, you can see how this was controversial from the start. When you hear about predestination and and then this penal substitution that Jesus paid the penalty for these individual people and their sins, that's the first time that anybody had proposed that in Christian history. But it's just one theory out of many, and I'll, I'll progress quickly through the rest. Later, there was the governmental theory proposed by Hugo Grotius, who was a Dutch lawyer and theologian who lived from 1583 to 1645. God is the moral governor of the universe. Jesus dies as a substitute for all of humanity in general uh, and, and appeases God as the judge, but not for people's individual sin. Jesus upholds the dignity of justice and dies on behalf of everyone, not instead of everyone. So Jesus' death benefits the human race, but Jesus doesn't die instead of other people. And then a popular theory that has emerged in contemporary times is called Christus Victor. It's based on a book by the same title uh, by the author Gustav Aulain in 1930. And it reinterpreted the ransom theory. That was the dominant theory for a thousand years in early Christianity, that Jesus defeated the devil and won victory over evil. Jesus didn't pay a ransom to the devil, but Jesus in giving himself on the cross, is like he tricked Satan. The, the, the devil thought he was, he was going to kill Jesus and get rid of Jesus, but, but Jesus turned the tables. And in, in so doing, Jesus showed what it's like to live a good life, and, and He gave His life for what He believed in. But in doing so, He defeated evil and the devil, and He shows us how to be liberated. Jesus rescues us for, uh, from, from sin and, and rescues humanity from the slavery and sickness of sin jesus didn't just die but he also lived and taught and he rose again it's become a popular theory and then the last one is called recapitulation and this is the theory of the atonement held by the eastern orthodox church so the western christianity traces its roots back to roman catholicism through the protestant reformation and eastern orthodox christianity is the 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 dominant christianity in, in eastern europe and and so eastern orthodox christianity does not view jesus's death as a substitute for us at at all jesus wasn't a substitute the recapitulation theory means that everything adam and eve got wrong in the fall that led to sin in the world jesus got right that jesus reversed the effects of the fall in his teaching his life his death his resurrection his his miracles, his healing, Jesus began the process of restoring creation back to its, good, uh, it's back to its good order that God created us with before the fall. And Jesus shows us how to attain oneness with God, theosis, unity with God, oneness with God. And so that's a theory of the atonement that is just totally different from the rest that we've discussed. Uh, previously, but that's a theory of the atonement held by 25% of Christians in the world in the Eastern Orthodox Church. So there are several views of the atonement that do not present an angry God punishing his son for the sins of individual people that have been predestined by God to the exclusion of everybody else. So if you have problems with the the angry, violent God who must be appeased by the death of his son, there is a stream of thought throughout Christian history that saw the same problems that you do. Now, maybe you hold to the penal substitution theory. If you do, welcome to the well. This is a, a church that is a big tent, and we have people here that hold a, vi- a diversity of views on many things. But if, but if you've been given this image of God that is, that is violent and angry, there are plenty of views that show a different picture Now, N.T. Wright is an Anglican theologian. He comes out of the Reformation. He's a New Testament scholar, and he's written a commentary on Romans. And even though he holds to some kind of substitutionary view of the death of Jesus on the cross, he recognizes the issues that that people who don't have that view have and what it can lead to. In his commentary, the letter to the Romans, uh, N.T. Wright writes this, thus is God's righteousness revealed in the gospel events of Jesus's death and resurrection. God has been true to the covenant, has dealt properly with sin, has come to the rescue of the helpless and has done so with due impartiality between Jew and Gentile, that the purpose of Paul writing the letter to the Romans was to bring Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians together who were a part of the church in Rome. And in Paul seeing Jesus as a sacrifice for sins, he's hearkening back to the Jewish system of sacrifice. And he is uh, explaining to the Jewish Christians there why Jesus um, can be seen as a symbol, as a sacrifice within that system. And also invite Gentile Christians uh, to follow Jesus as well, So this would not be taken literally, Paul's words would be, not be taken literally as, uh, as an angry, abusive God punishing his son like a, like a, a, a drunk, abusive father. It sees Jesus within the, the sacrificial system of the Hebrew Bible. In an interview uh, called Premier, um, with an evangelical group called Premier.TV, N.T. Wright was asked if he believed in the penal substitution this is back in 2018 and, and here's what N.T. Wright said he said we have taken John 3:16, that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son and what people have heard is God so hated the world that he killed his only son when you say that in a world where there's child abuse and domestic violence people think I know that bully of a God and I hate him and the whole thing goes horribly horribly wrong. And then he goes on to quote Paul in Romans chapter five, that God commends his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And while some people view the crucifixion as like, that's like the only thing that really matters in their faith. N.T. Wright pointed out that we have a story throughout the entire Bible of God looking to undo the effects of the Paul and God liberating people from slavery and God being concerned about, The welfare of people and justice and righteousness and peace and joy and and God leading us toward a better life. And the crucifixion is, is a major, the major part of that story, but it's a part of that story. And we can pick and choose verses to fit any preconceived framework that we like. But in doing so, we may leave out important parts of who God is and paint a distorted picture of God that can lead some people to thinking God is angry and violent and they may become angry and violent themselves in Colossians 1 as we read earlier Paul writes that the Son is the image of the invisible God so for a Christian it's not that Jesus is like God it's that God is like Jesus and so when we want to understand who God is we look at Jesus Jesus shows us who God is Jesus is not violent which means God is not violent Jesus reconciles Jesus makes peace that means God reconciles God makes peace the cross is the ultimate statement that God is on your side and cares for you the Romans violently killed Jesus Pontius Pilate was the violent one not God Jesus was crucified by a violent empire who crucified thousands and thousands of people. And he was led through a mob of people who yelled crucify him. The closest equivalent in America would be a a public hanging in the past or a a lynching. That's what happened to Jesus. Jesus doesn't crucify people. Jesus doesn't storm capital buildings. Jesus doesn't plant pipe bombs. Jesus doesn't abuse people. Jesus is nonviolent. Jesus shows us what God is like. God is nonviolent. Folks who understand the cross as God being violent, they've misunderstood who God is. And the cross is meant to send the opposite message that Jesus was the one who was crucified. Jesus is not violent. Other people were violent toward him, but God is not violent desmond tutu passed away on december 26th at the age of 90 and he was a south african anglican bishop during apartheid in south africa apartheid means separateness apartness it was racial segregation uh, in south africa in in which a a white minority oppressed a black majority from 1948 until 1992. and in 1976 there was a student-led uprising that led to a march in, in Soweto in Johannesburg, South Africa, uh, during which police responded by shooting a 13-year-old boy. And it became known as the Soweto Uprising, and and young people escalated the violence and smashed windows and set fire to schools and government buildings, and and then the police responded by by shooting at students and, and leading to more than 60 fatalities. Now, in the light of that violence, In the 1980s the anti-apartheid groups realized we need to engage in non-violent protest toward segregation we're not going to be a part of the violence and they drew inspiration of course from gandhi's movement for liberation in india and uh, bishop uh, archbishop kamar's work in brazil and, and martin luther king jr in the united states and And uh, a movement in the Philippines that was nonviolent that brought down the dictator uh, Marcos a couple of years before that. And and Desmond Tutu was one of the leaders in this nonviolent movement to end apartheid in South Africa. And when interviewed and asked why he chose the route of nonviolence, this is what Bishop Desmond Tutu said. When we see others as the enemy, we risk becoming what we hate. When we oppress others, we end up oppressing ourselves. All of our humanity is dependent upon recognizing the humanity in others. When N.T. Wright was interviewed by that podcast, he said, The big picture of what God was doing in the cross and in all of Scripture was showing us what it's like to be fully human. The human beings God created us to be And the cross was meant to dehumanize Jesus in any victim it was meant to erase them and take away their humanity but think about it who's being dehumanized in crucifixion the victim or the people who are pounding nails into the hands and feet of another person violence dehumanizes us it dehumanizes the person who is violent but Jesus showed us how to respond when people are violent towards us when people want to attack us we don't return violence for violence Jesus did not attack them back he didn't seek revenge he absorbed it now of course if you're in an abusive situation you you and the kids get out of an abusive situation we're not talking about being abused by an abuser we're talking about how we respond in general in a world of increasing violence that we don't engage in the violence we don't attack people back. We don't seek revenge. We show there's a better way. And in doing so, we elevate our humanity and we elevate the, person, the, the humanity of the people who are attacking us. All of our humanity is dependent upon recognizing the humanity in others. And that's what Jesus does for us in the cross. I invite you to pray with me. Oh God, thank you that as we consider the central event in Christian history, the crucifixion and then the resurrection of Jesus, we do want to love you with our minds. Some people are bored by theology. Some people love it. But this thinking about what what the death of Jesus meant helps us to love Jesus more. Helps us to understand who Jesus is and what Jesus means to us, people who want to follow Jesus. And in a world of increasing violence, when violent rhetoric is shared every minute on social media, and we've already seen outbreaks of violence, and we may see more, God, we know that you are not violent. Those who would seek to use a violent view of God to justify their violence, no, they're they're unjustified in doing that because in Jesus we see who God is, and Jesus is nonviolent, just the opposite. Jesus gave Himself for our benefit in a mysterious way that we don't fully understand, but we can certainly see that Jesus showed us how to be more fully human, to elevate the humanity of everybody, to work for peace, to not get trapped in the cycle of violence because violence just begets violence. But Jesus showed us what it's like to be fully human and recognize the humanity in others. He showed us the way. And we thank you that we get to follow Jesus in a challenging time, but a time in which our humanity is dependent upon recognizing the humanity in others. In Jesus' name, and everybody said,